Good afternoon and welcome to the Thunder Buddies podcast. I am your host today, Michael Martin, and I am joined by a very special guest today. You may know him from Down to Dunk on the Wednesday pod or the NBA's or for the Athletics NBA Slam and Jam podcast. He is the Tim Duncan of NBA trivia. He goes by a variety of titles. Welcome Alex Spears, a.k.a. Al Baby Cakes, a.k.a. Deborah Buckets to the Thunder Buddies podcast. How are you doing today, Alex? Wow, thank you so much for the intro. Uh, pleasure to be here. First time, Thunder Buddy. First time, long time. It's been a pleasure to have you. I've been listening to you guys for a while. I know that I had to go through Schleich to get through some hoops to get you on here, but we're we're happy to have you. Yeah, and I apologize uh, if my voice uh, if, I, if it sounds really sultry. I'm apparently getting sick again, so this is what my uh, voice is going to sound like for the pod. Too bad, but um, nothing gets me feeling better than talking about some Thunder basketball. We're going to start out with the uh, Thunder losing to the Miami Heat 112 to 111 in the Thunder's first game on national TV since the bubble in 2020. Bubble Butler was the Jimmy that OKC had to deal with as he goes 20, uh, 23 of 23 from the line, 6 of 17 from the field for 35 points and outlast the Thunder despite great performances from a few Thunder players. Just wanted to know your overall thoughts on the game and what you thought about a lot of these guys and what is probably the biggest stage they've ever played on. Yeah, knowing now what happened in the Sixers game, man, if they had won the Miami game, like we, I think we'd be tied with Portland, who, who's in the 10th spot. We're already above the Lakers. Like We'd be right there at the play-in. We'd have won our 20th game, which is frustrating because that game was miserable in many respects because they just refuse to miss free throws and they refuse to stop taking them. Uh, the fact that, you know, they hit for the 40 free throws is annoying enough, but then knowing that OKC missed seven of their own. I mean, there were so many things in that game where just one thing had to change and OKC could have gotten that win on national TV. So it was frustrating in that respect. As you mentioned, though, there were some guys who had really nice games. I think Josh Giddy in particular had a really nice game, and it kind of started after Shea went out early in that game, and he got to run the offense. Miami was in that zone, and Giddy just started picking it apart. And they should be the type of team that can pick apart his own because they have so many guys who are good at moving without the ball, cutting to the rim, and we started to see that finally in that in that second quarter. So it, it was a it was a difficult game to watch because there were so many free throws. There were some highlights, and it was a national TV game, so they didn't embarrass themselves in any way. You know, it was a very close game throughout. I think people watching it at least were entertained at the end because it was a very close game. But yeah, knowing what happened in the Philly game, it's just like, oh my gosh, if we had won that game, we would be having to talk about the play-in right now. Oh, for sure. I mean, I got the whole family together. My dad, my little brother, we all watched it in front of the fireplace and watched Jimmy Butler heat himself up from the free throw line and shoot nothing. but shots from right there but it was a fun game nonetheless um, I'm with you Josh I thought played one of his best games as a pro um, along with the two Boston games and the two games at MSG but he had 18 points 15 rebounds and 10 assists on 8 of 18 and 0 for 4 from 3 he had some really timely rebounds down the stretch and was a big part of the Thunder keeping the game within arm's reach during crunch time but you alluded to it they just built a wall against Shea it was like Red Rover and they just linked arms across the court and said you're not passing but I thought, yeah, and to despite their, that, yeah, he played to their well. credit, like like Miami's a very good team. Even when they are missing guys, they have the infrastructure in place where they can still be a very good defensive team, and they showed that. Yeah, that that was reminiscent of some of the games earlier in the season, whether it was like the Miami game or the Pelicans game, where you could just tell, like, okay, this team actually has the personnel to really make it tough on Shea, and. I thought Shea ended up playing pretty well, especially in the middle points of that game. He ended up 26 points. Um, you know, it wasn't as bad as some of like the Memphis games, or it didn't look as tough as maybe that Pelicans game did with Herb Jones. But it, they they still put just a ton of pressure on him. I mean, just especially in that first quarter, like not even letting him get to the paint. It was like the second he would cross the three-point line, there were two guys just waiting for him. And then Jimmy would you know, magically appear out of nowhere at the end of every drive. So yeah, credit to them, but credit to Shea for beating that eventually and on a national stage still having a very efficient night. 
Yeah, it looked like at times earlier in the game, he was kind of pressing, trying to get a shot off because I'm sure all those guys are feeling the same way about their first national TV game and forever. Yeah. But overall, I thought he played well, uh, including the things that we're talking about. He gets 26 points, 50% from the field, two of four from three, which feels like an aberration for him with the amount of threes that he refuses to take. But he was uh, good overall. And then um, I also wanted to talk about talk on a uh, not as high a note of Lou Dort, who was a very frustrating a watch for me. How did you feel about watching Lou the other night? Yeah, I mean, obviously a tough defensive assignment uh, for Dort having to go against someone like Jimmy Butler. Um, but yeah, the, the the finishing at the rim, which has been an issue throughout his career. Not only do I think it's gotten worse this season, but I think like this particular point of the season, for whatever reason, like these last couple weeks, he is missing some shots that... Like we always talk about how when Dorch driving to the rim, like you never really know what's going to happen. Um, but there was even a play like last night in the Sixers game where I felt like he made a really good move. It looked good and it was still bouncing out for him. I feel like part of it is luck. And then part of it is just him, you know, the things we've talked about where, you know, he's he's either getting to the rim out of control and just throwing it off the backboard or just making a bad decision in terms of taking a shot on a drive or not. But yeah, I mean, his finishing right now, according to Cleaning the Glass, is career low, 51%. And somebody posted it on Twitter the other day, just the rim finishing numbers, who was at the bottom. And he's right there. I mean, I think he was like one or two. And Shea was also down there. I think Shea was around like 56% on this uh, chart. But for me, that's kind of a different story. One, 56% is obviously higher than 51%, but Shea's drives are tougher because he's getting so much more defensive attention than Lou is. I mean, some of these misses that Lou is having, I wouldn't say they're always wide open, but they're very makeable shots. Whereas sometimes with Shea, it's like, oh, that's, that is a really tough shot to take. So yeah, Dort has been rough lately. Um, you know, I thought last year he had made some strides there in terms of finishing at the rim. I remember at the beginning of last year, it was like, oh, everything's fine. I think he was shooting like 60% from the rim. And and that eventually tailed off in the second half of the season. You kind of just hope that like something's going to click at some point because I I am genuinely starting to get worried. Like, is he ever going to be able to just finish at an average rate at the rim for a wing? Because that should be one of his strengths because he is so strong. Like he can get to the rim. He can bully guys. But if he continues to shoot 51%, it's just going to make it so rough for him because we already know the issues with the shooting, like outside of the corners, it's been tough. He's shooting right now 31% on non-corner threes. Corner Dort, alive and well, 44% from the corners. But yeah, like he needs something else to his game and it should be rim finishing based on how strong he is. You hit the nail on the head. It's not a problem of him getting to the rim. He's getting to the rim about any time he wants. I don't know if you <laughs> yeah. have any s- siblings, but it reminds me of my younger brother where you let your younger sibling like dribble the ball all the way down the lane and then you block their shot or really contest it. And it feels yeah. like Dort, they're just giving him the runway, like the Olay Matador defense, like get in the lane and then see what can happen. I mean, he's improved his shot to a degree, but Joe and I have talked about this before. I don't know how much you can improve or work on something like touch. It, that just feels like something almost like the passing gene that's like you have it or you don't. Um, maybe he needs some more deceleration in his game, sort of like Shea, because it feels like whenever he's like launched at the basket, like he's going a thousand miles per hour and the ball's going to like go through the backboard. Yeah. And I remember with, you know, obviously Bays has a similar issue where he has trouble finishing at the rim. Let me, let me look at Baisley's number. Somebody uh, last night we were in the Discord, and uh, he was asking why is Bay's camping out in the corner? Like, shouldn't he be in the dunker spot or something? And I looked it up, and this kind of blew my mind. Now it's not true anymore, but last night he was actually shooting better from the corners at fifty three percent than he was at the rim at fifty two percent. So Bay's has a has a similar issue with rim finishing. But I remember there was a guy on Twitter. I think his name is Skyfall, and he did some video clips of Bay's finishing. This was like in years past. And it seemed to be like a coordination issue. Like he would be jumping off the wrong foot. I don't know if that's the issue with Dort because a lot of times, like it seems like he's making normal movements, like his drives can sometimes look normal, but then right when he gets to the rim, it all falls apart. Like he gets 99% of the way there 
And then for whatever reason he misses, which is probably more of a touch issue, like you said. And I don't know what he can do beyond just trying to dunk everything. Maybe that would be a start. Um, but yeah, it that definitely has been a frustrating aspect in what has otherwise been a very entertaining season for the Thunder. Yeah, I uh, think you're right before we wrap it up on the Lou part of it is that he gets all the way to the finish line and then just something happens. But I think some of it is just his willingness to try any shot in there makes it look even worse. There are some guys who are definitely a little bit more conservative on which shots they're going to take. And Lou Dort has never seen a shot he didn't like, especially inside the lane where he's like, you know, I've never done this up and under like 360 layup, but it's going to look really cool when I make it right here. Right. Yeah. And now we saw Jay will do it in the Sixers game. And I was like, oh, I could I could definitely do that. Oh, yes. No, looking forward to the layup lines in the next game between those guys. But last thing on the Heat game, just wanted to get your evaluation of Mark, um, you know, as a younger coach in his biggest stage as a game um, on national TV. Yeah, uh, his uh, his after first quarter interview stuck out for me. He was just like very confident. Uh, he must have come. He must have been prepared what he was going to say. But I just came away. I don't even remember what he said, but I just came away with the feeling of like, oh, this guy's confident. Like he's ready to go. He wasn't like stuttering at all. Like he was focused and engaged in that game. And yeah, it it was his first appearance on the national stage, I believe. Um, And, you know, we've talked about how with like a coach like this, when the team's not in the playoffs, it is kind of hard to judge what they're doing. Like how much of Shea's improvement do you give Mark credit for or whoever it is? It could be giddy. That's really hard for like an average fan who's not in the building to know how Mark is doing, but it's hard not to say that of the young teams, like you have to feel the best about Mark, especially like the young teams with first time head coaches. I mean, he has just been such a steady presence for this franchise and We've seen it in years past. Like he is willing to call guys out. I mean, we've seen him like yell at Poku on the sidelines. So he seems to have the authority, even though he's, I think he's like my age, which that, that really blows my mind. Like trying to imagine myself trying to command a room of those guys. I don't think I would be able to do it. So he clearly has authority within that locker room. The guys clearly respect him. Like even with everything going on with Bays, like we still haven't had like any kind of blow up there. You know, no like bad things coming out from the organization. And I think you have to give some of that credit to Mark for keeping all these guys engaged when he's playing, you know, the entire roster night to night. Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, I'm only 25 and there's only two guys on the roster who are older than me, which just feels insane. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Mark, he uh, he's doing a good job. I wasn't a big fan of starting Eugene, but they had some great stretches later in the game with Kenrich at the five. But you hit the nail on the head with that of just a lot of these coaches, whether it's Steven Silas or Jamal Mosley or Dwayne Casey on a lot of these other rebuilding teams. There's an obvious expiration date for a lot of those guys, which where is with Mark, you know, this could be something longer term. I know that the thing with Scott Brooks, a lot of Thunder fans thought that that waited out a little bit too long. But Mark, I think right now looks like a better X's nose coach and has a really good handle for this roster. But yeah, I wanted to get your overall just um how out of five stars what would you give his uh interview mid-game and his uh wired Mm. segment uh i mean you have to give it i mean he didn't say anything so memorable that i can repeat it so i I probably shouldn't give him five stars you know it's not like when uh svg was uh on the sidelines and said you know form an effing wall like that was that was a classic that's a five star performance so this would i would give this a four star performance I think that's fair. Yeah, Mark uh, looked good. I mean, I was getting Scott Brook flashbacks uh, with all the, um, I don't know how many of those wired you remember, but every single time he had the same thing. It was just defense rebounding pace. And it didn't matter which game. They had all those national TV games. It's like, well, I wonder what Scott's going to tell the guys. He's like, just keep moving the ball, pace, rebounding every single time. Yeah, I feel so bad for these guys because you know they're saying other things, but they they don't show like them calling out plays, which I, I feel like they do that sometimes in other sports. And that would be way more interesting. I guess they're worried about like the other team watching and picking up and signaling and cheating. But yeah, I wish they would allow those to be more interesting because we know that they're saying other things than just clapping constantly and saying defense. For sure. 
But moving on, um, it's always efficient with SGA in Philadelphia. Just wanted to get your overall thoughts and takeaways from that game where the Thunder really showed out on, um, you know, a big market stage. It wasn't national TV, but they're playing against Joel Embiid, who's an MVP candidate and a former MVP in James Harden. Yeah, I thought that was their most impressive win of the season uh, for a few reasons. One, it was on the road. And I think I heard Matt Pinto say on the radio broadcast that they had lost six road games in a row of that point. They had also lost six in a row to Philly. So that was impressive. Philly being completely healthy at the time was also impressive. Um, But the thing about that game, you know, this whole season, one of the storylines of the Thunder season is how many close games they've been into. So if you go and look at the clutch minutes, like their clutch minutes are already well above anything they did these last couple of years. And it's great because they're a young team. You want them to be in those situations, try to learn how to win. Last night was different, though, because they, for the first time, prevented a game from going to clutch time. That game got down to eight points with like three minutes left. And on consecutive possessions, they pushed it back to 10. One was the Giddy got an offensive rebound and went right back up and got fouled, hit his two free throws. And then on the very next play, Shea drives to the rim, get fouled again, makes his two free throws. I thought that was like a huge development for this team because as that game's winding down, you know, they lose their lead at the start of the third quarter and then they start building it back up and then it starts shrinking down and you're just knowing like, okay, this is going to clutch time. Like not that they're going to lose, but like this is going to be a close game at the finish. And for them to maintain that lead and then expand it as the game finally gets gets into those closing minutes, I just thought that was wildly impressive given everything I mentioned, being on the road, going against Philly fully healthy. Um, I thought it was their most impressive win of the season. Yeah, it's hard to argue against. I mean, I remember back with a really, really long home stand they had of like eight straight games and just felt like mm-hmm. every single game's going to overtime. Like I don't yeah, they get down is. by 10. Yeah. Every game's going to overtime. So don't get too excited. But I asked Mark about it earlier this season because over the last two years, I think since the start of the 2022 calendar year to now, they are number one in 15 point uh, 15 point game comebacks, I guess. And oh, yeah. I, yeah. And I asked him about that. Of You guys have been trailing for a while, but now you're in more games where you're leading. What's the juxtaposition of that and how you guys adapt and handle that? But I think last night was a prime example of them growing and learning more and more about how to play with a lead and keep a team at um, like arm's length distance and pull out a win. Yeah. So they're up to 235 clutch time minutes right now, um, which I think last year it was like 150. And then the year before that, it was like down at a hundred and we're at the halfway point of this season. So again, it's exciting that they're in all these close games. They're getting all this experience, but long-term the goal of that experience is not only to win in close games. It's also to learn how to avoid getting into clutch time moments because you look at some of the teams at the bottom of this list, like the Memphis Grizzlies are down there because they're a really good team. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks are down there. The Sixers are down there. The Celtics are down there. So eventually that will happen with this team. And last night was kind of a glimpse into the future of that. Um, in terms of players who I thought played really well, Josh Giddy, I thought had another really nice game with the 24 and eight um, and taking five free throws. I was just looking this up. So last season, he only had three games where he took five free throws or more this year, halfway through the season, he's already up to four of those games. Again, it's not like, like we know that he needs to get to the line more, but I do feel like we're starting to see it a little bit. And more importantly, he's become just a much more reliable free throw shooter. I mean, when he goes to the line, I trust that it's going in. He's up to 81% on the season now. And that's another component of that end game scenario. Like when Josh gets fouled and goes to the line, do you feel confident he's going to make it? And this season, I really do. Um, So I thought that was a big thing. And then Shea had just a really impressive game, Um, not just offensively. He, He hit those 16 for 16 from the line, which was his career best without a miss. But the two blocks on Embiid and his steal, which was also on Embiid and where Embiid picked up his fifth foul, I mean, those were wildly impressive plays, especially for a team that we know doesn't really have anyone who can match up with Joel Embiid. It's kind of has to be everyone chipping in. And Shea definitely did his part last night in terms of helping out on Joel Embiid. 
Yeah, all in BHA, 37 points, 10 of 16, one of one from three. You mentioned the 16 of 16 from the line, eight boards, six assists. He was great. Josh, as you mentioned, he had six assists in like the first half of the first quarter. He was just incredible, just lasering passes around. I thought that the game in a lot of ways was one in transition. I know that KD said it last year about, I think it was the TNT game when they played where, I don't know, Ben Simmons had his return. Do you remember that one where the fans said they weren't going to boo Ben Simmons so he didn't like get the, the payment out of it or whatever it was? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was that game. And I remember the... Nets blew him out and Katie after said, you know, the 76ers don't want to run. They don't have any fast guys. And the Thunder really exposed that because outside of Tyrese Maxey, not a single guy on that roster wants to run and Tyrese Maxey is not playing defense either. So if you can get out on the break, Joel Embiid and James Harden at best are doing a light uh, hearted jog back down the floor. Yeah. And to that point, I'm looking at cleaning the glass right now. So Philly is uh, 21st in the league in transition defense. And you could definitely see that last night. Like the difference in speed between these two teams showed up multiple times during that game. Like it, whether it was someone just blowing by Harden or Maxi, or just them getting like a really good cut that no one on Philly reacted to quick enough. Um, you saw the difference in speed multiple times during that game. I, I want to see where OKC was in transition offense. So they're at 17th right now. So kind of middle of the pack. They're a team that should be good in transition, I feel like, because you have someone like Giddy who can make those hit-ahead passes. You have someone like Shea. You know, JRE was kind of like the the transition specialist early in the season. Like, his transition stats were just absurd. So maybe once he gets back, they'll start climbing up the rankings. But, yeah, I think that that's a good point. They're, the transition game within that game was really important because of the speed difference. Yeah, and then Dr. J. Will has his best uh, game as a pro. He had that up-and-under layup that we referenced earlier, but he had 11 points, 5 rebounds, guards Joel Embiid decently as or as best as he possibly can, given the circumstances that Joel Embiid is an alien and a monster who's just almost impossible to guard. Trey Mann had James Harden looking like an old man with his shoes stuck in the mud trying to guard him, and then uh, yeah. another solid J-Dub night. Yeah, yeah, and another good Muscala night. My my cousin in Philly uh, was texting me just furious about Mike Muscala for some reason. Uh, he was so mad that Muscala was still playing in the league and that he was uh, hitting threes on his favorite team. And I had to remind him he's the only reason you have Tyrese Maxey, so you should love Mike Muscala no matter what. Um, but yeah, there were multiple guys off the bench. I mean, you can just look at the plus minus, like plus 24 for Muscala, plus 19 for Trey Mann, plus 24 for Isaiah Joe, who didn't even hit a three in that game. But having those types of guys, and if Trey Mann can become that type of guy, and it really depends on his shooting, which last night he was two of five from three, if he can be one of those spark plugs as well off the bench, then you're going to start seeing more games like this because they're going to be maintaining and extending their lead with when they bring in these bench units. Um, so yeah, it, it was pretty much a good game across the board. Uh, I mean, there were a few uh, low lights, but yeah, overall, I thought everyone played. You mentioned Jay Will. Yeah, that was definitely his best game, like as a uh, as a professional. Um, the, but all of his shots kind of surprised me when they happened. He he also hit a three in that game. More importantly, early in that game, he was in the corner and they pass it to him, and Philly closed out on him. Like he was shooting 48% from three. And I was reading Kyle Newbeck. He's a writer, uh, a Sixers writer after the game. And he brought up that exact play too. Cause he's like, did they not read the scouting report? Like, why are you closing out so strongly on this guy? Who's a rookie and is not known as a three point shooter. Um, so you saw some of those miscues with Philly where, yeah, it didn't seem like they knew who all the players on the court were at all times, but to Jay Will's credit, he did end up hitting a three, so maybe they were right. It was a fun game. Yeah, I had my first um, time in a long time having some basketball feelings of feeling the the end of the game and some of the pressure. It is, you know, don't get me wrong, I'd rather have a good team to watch in the Thunder, but it is just so weird to think about what those Westbrook and Durant teams that now they're on the opposite of end of it where they are now the young up-and-coming team who's beating the contender who's not really prepared for a young team on the night off. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about it like that. But yeah, it's much better being on the other side of those games because when you're good and you lose games like that, and, and to, to OKC's credit, like 
you know, losing to OKC isn't as bad as losing to like Houston or Charlotte um, or Detroit right now with everyone out for them. Um, so it's not like a, a huge black eye for Philly. But at the same time, if I was a Philly fan, I'd be I'd just be so pissed more than anything else. Like, how are we losing to this team? Like they're they're just getting everyone back healthy. They're they've been on like a nice streak. I think they had won five of their last six games coming into that game against the Thunder. Um, but yeah, I remember many of those games with the not just the KD Russ Thunder, but even oh, more yeah. so with like the OK three version of the Thunder. Yeah, you come in as a 10-point favorite in Sacramento, and it's like, oh, we're going down to the wire here. Yeah, it's like, okay, I guess this is just how it's going to be every night. Yeah. It's going to be extra, close. and Extra entertainment, for sure. Yeah. But um, the rest of the season, the end of 2023, you know, we're at the halfway point, 41 games in. I just wanted to know, what does a successful finish to 2023 look like for you? Are there any team goals you have for the Thunder? Any accomplishments, development, milestones, checkpoints you're hoping for certain players or anything like that? What would it take uh, this season in the end for you to feel like, oh, this was a good end of the season? Um, First and foremost, no injuries. That's a big one. I want everyone to stay healthy so they can come into next year full strength. Uh, I don't have like a it's weird. I don't have like a goal for this team because like if your goal would be, oh, I really want them to get a top five pick or maybe even top six pick, you know, top six is probably still a, a possibility. And so maybe you could make that a, a goal. But how they're playing right now, like it, it's just hard to truly believe that that's going to happen like i'm just i want to be open the rest of the season to whatever is going to happen and not be pissed when they lose or pissed when they when they win um i mean they're four and two now in 2023 and you know that was wins over boston wins over philly win over dallas of course without luca um and should have been a win against miami they're playing so well right now that i'm i'm not thinking about lottery standings basically at all especially during these games on the flip side like i'm not really thinking about the play in either like I, it would be cool if they kept winning and we started talking about the play in more seriously um just because it's something that we haven't discussed at all these last couple of years but i'm not really thinking about that either so like all of my goals for this team are kind of separate from the actual outcome of this season uh, as far as the standing is concerned, it's it's more about development. Like I would love to see Shea start shooting more threes as the season goes on. There was a point in that Sixers game in particular where he got the ball at the top of the key. It was wide open and MB like closed out on him, but he would have not, he would not have blocked it. And he just didn't take the shot. And that's the kind of stuff I would like to see in the second half where Shea is more willing to take those three pointers. I think that would be huge. You want to see the continued development for Giddy because as good as he's been, you know, there's still like this little voice in the back of my head, like how much, how much of this is really real. Um, but it, it does keep building. Like the sample size keeps building, you know, back when we were in the middle of December, it was like, Oh, Giddy over the last two weeks is doing this. And now it's like the last month and a half he's doing this. If we get to the end of the season and we're still going back to December as like our sample size, and it's still looking that good. I'm going to be very excited about giddy going forward and then for other players you know i would just like to see more usage for j-dub um going forward you know the, the kind of the i don't want to call it a usage battle but the the usage difference between dort and j-dub how that changes as the season goes on um i would love to see more being given to j-dub more responsibilities more shots let's try to get him a little bit more uncomfortable because he plays a very comfortable game right now and he ends up being very efficient as a result, but I kind of like to push him beyond those boundaries in the second half. And let's just see like what he could do, even if it costs, you know, a few efficiency uh, points. I will say though, he made his threes. He's where he's been making his threes. He hit two of three last night and I looked it up and he's 10 of his last 25, which is 40% which is very exciting. It's only 25 shots, you know, but I will take anything with J-Dub because that was kind of the promise. Part of the promise coming in to the draft with him was, oh, he shot over 40% in college. You know, his shot looks good. I'll probably translate. It hasn't translated up until now, but in this last recent stretch, it's starting to, 
So that's something I'm definitely watching. Um, you know, those are the three guys that I mostly care about. You know, I'm open to other guys surprising me. Um, you know, I, I love watching Isaiah Joe. I've enjoyed Trey Mann at times. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful that one of those guys like really pops where you feel strongly about them going into the summer. But it's my goals for the season in terms of what is successful is mostly the development of those three guys, Giddy, Shea, and J-Dub. Stop the count with him at 40%. We don't need any more. That We'll just sit at that. But I agree with you. There's not anything where I'm like tangible where it's like, well, they need to do this or this guy needs to do this. It's more of a rough outline, like abstract of I'd like to see this, this, and this. But they have been playing really well recently. They're only one game out of the play and two and a half games out of the sixth spot where the Clippers sit. But I'm with you. They're not in a position where they can really tank and get high uh, draft lottery odds. To me, I just think of it over and over as Chet is the pick this year. And it makes me feel so much better, especially whenever... You know, Sam Vecini, who you guys have talked to a bunch of times, had J-Dub as his third best rookie in the class so far. So it's almost like you're just getting another top pick in this one. And then wherever the other pick falls at like eight, nine, ten or whatever. Uh, but I guess the other uh, other things I'm looking for are, you know, who's going to grab the permanent spots in the rotation outside of Shea, Dork, Gideon, J-Dub. Those guys are pretty consistent playing around 30 minutes a night. Who's going to be the guy, like you mentioned with Trey, Isaiah, Joe, and others, who's going to be the guy who grabs the rein and says, you know, this is my role for the team going forward. Even before Chet, you know, Chet's going to change a lot of things, but I think it's going to be interesting. And then just let the boys play it out. Uh, No injuries, like you said, but just whatever happens, happens. I don't think there's a real need to shut down guys maybe until like the last week of the season where maybe things are just completely out of reach. But just let's see more games of consequence where these guys are in crunch time like they have been earlier this season. And then just the overall thing that I'm looking for is just continued chemistry building between Shea and Josh, because that feels like the most important thing this season. And although they've made really big strides so far, it feels like there's still room for improvement. Yeah, that's a a good point. I haven't thought about uh, I haven't looked up their combos recently. And I will do it as we're listening, just because I want to get a feel for where it is. I'm sure it's terrible because they're a part of the starting unit, and the starting unit has been terrible. Uh, yeah, so their net rating, that two-man pairing, Shea and Giddy, is at a minus six right now. Um, it'd be interesting to break that down further, because obviously they tend to be starting with Dort. Um, so you could probably do some combinations and see if there are some combinations that are already being that are already positive uh, with those two guys in the lineup. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's a really good point. Cause that, that is really a critical development for the future of this team. Um, if those guys can not just play together, but succeed together. Yeah, for sure. And I think a positive that you're seeing out of it is Shay just trusting Josh. You saw it the other night. Um, I yeah. think it was against Washington, whatever he hit him on that three on the pass, but just seeing him trust his teammate, but Uh, there's even an extent where I think that maybe it helps not having Chet out there just because it forces them not to have a release valve of this giant seven footer who can catch lobs and shoot threes. It's forced them to adjust to each other's games, maybe under, I don't know, harder circumstances, but I think it's helping overall. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm thinking about like having, you mentioned like the the potential release valve of Chet. I'm looking at some of these combinations, you know, like SGA, Giddy, and Muscala. They've only played 142 minutes together, plus 18 in those minutes. SGA, Giddy, and Isaiah Joe. They've only played 36 minutes together, or 32 minutes together, plus 36 in those in those few minutes. Um, let me look at someone like Lindy. I bet they've barely played with yeah, eight minutes together, plus 67. Um, so that is going to be another component of this SGA giddy relationship is when they as a combo also are getting that shooter in the lineup with them all the time, because just looking at some of these, these combinations, they haven't really played with a shooter on the court with them a lot this season. You know, a lot of the Muscala minutes or the Joe minutes are coming with second units or with some of those like bomber lineups that they like to play with Shea or sometimes even with J-Dub. So, yeah, you plug in Chet into that lineup, and I think you will start to see that swing happen with the net rating where all of a sudden the giddy Shea pairing looks good all of a sudden. 
Yeah, should be exciting. A lot to look forward to. Um, and then the last thing that uh, segment here is flashes slash you remind me of, which was, I hope I explained this properly to you because I know it was a, a rough concept, but I know the comps are insanely hard and they're not the best way to evaluate players as each player is extremely different. Even the comparisons that people reference the most, like Michael Jordan to Kobe, are not one-to-one. More times one-to-one comps, we uh, more times than one-to-one comps, we get players who just remind us of past players. Like Durant, in a lot of ways, was the evolutionary Dirk in some of his game. And some other things like that, where Steph is the evolutionary Steve Nash, where you can see flashes of that previous guy in their game. So I just wanted to go through a couple of Thunder guys and ask you if they remind you of anybody starting with Shea. Oh, man. The thing about this team, and I would say for the especially for the top three guys, Shea, Giddy and Chet, they're so unique, at least in comparison to like modern NBA guys to compare them to. And I really struggle coming up with comps for basically any of them. I mean, Giddy's the hardest. Like, I do not think that there's a good comp out there for Giddy. One that one, because it either feels like you're choosing someone way too good, like magic Johnson or something. If you want to like compare like rebound and assist numbers at a young age, or you're going like way too low with someone like Joe Ingalls, who you know, has has been a really good connector. Giddy could absolutely play that role in the future in the NBA, but we have much higher aspirations for Giddy. Um, so like Giddy is near impossible. SGA, is there anyone who jumps out to you? So I had early Houston James Harden when James would still make a little bit more effort off the ball and he wasn't the heliocentric yeah. offensive juggernaut we would later know him as. Obviously, there are differences, but I think some of the, uh, the differences, such as Harden's a much better passer and playmaker. He relied on the three way more than Shea has. Shea's a world's better defender already. And then the biggest similarities to me is the two are just so relentless, attacking the paint and just drawing double teams and getting to the free throw line and just being bigger yeah. guards who are elite scores and elite one on one scores. It kind of makes me want to go back and watch like uh, Ginobili video to see if there's any similarities because of course that was always the comparison with Harden when he was you know at OKC um and I wonder I wonder if there's any similarities between SGA and, and how Ginobi play um, probably a little bit of the footwork stuff but I don't know yeah. uh, with Harden there's a lot to be positive about it's not perfect on the negative side of the Harden comp I would say that Shea hopefully it doesn't get to this point but there are some concerns for me of I hope he doesn't get to the point like Harden and Trey Young where the free throws in his game are not necessarily the um, cherry on top of the ice cream, but they become like a giant part of his game that he's relying on. And I hope that he doesn't get to that point where it's like, well, I didn't get to the line 10 times, so how can I have a good night here? Yeah, yeah, that, that that's true. I, I mean, the thing I love about Shea, and everyone has talked about this, is he in some ways is a foul merchant, like getting to the line a ton compared to other guys. Uh, but he does not have any of like the, the, the he does not complain constantly like Luca. Um, and so I really appreciate that about his game. And it makes his getting to the line all the time easier to stomach as a fan. Like I, I don't come away from SGA games ever like bored with how it looked. You know, I the thing with Harden was, yeah, he was racking up all these fouls and, and the same with Trey. A lot of times they're bending the rules or or taking the rules to their absolute limit to try to draw those fouls. Shea, a lot of times, like his drives are still like really pretty. Like the, the movements he's making, yes, he gets fouled at the end of those, but it's not this thing where like, oh, I can see he's hooking his arm under the defender. He's going to try to get this foul. Oh, there's the head whip back trying to make sure the ref saw it. So like, I, I certainly understand the comparison with Harden, but the, the nice thing about Shea is it doesn't seem to be coming with all the negatives that you typically associate with guys who get to the line a ton. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Butler, just watching that, it's like when you finally settle down and eat an entire like tub of ice cream, maybe that's just me. And you're like, this is gross. What am I doing here? And just watching <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Butler go to the free throw line over and over and over. But I agree with you on Shea. Um, he's just relentless attacking and he's maneuvering through and around contact contrary to the guys like Harden and Trey Young, who it's like our heat seeking missiles trying to find the contact. So I think that's yeah. the biggest difference. Uh, but do you yeah, have absolutely. anybody who um, Shea reminds you of before we move on to Josh? 
Uh, I don't think so. All right. Awesome. Well, with Josh, I had, like you said, the comps are just impossible. And that's why I want to do flashes because I think it's easier to see, you know, this guy, this part of his game reminds me of somebody else. As you mentioned, I'm sure uh, Josh is, he's, I'll guarantee it. He is somewhere in between Michael Carter Williams and Magic Johnson as a player. Okay. Okay. I would I know that that's my bold take is he'll be in between those two guys as a talent, but I pray uh, that is the case. Yeah. Lonzo ball was my comp for him just in terms of being a bigger guard who can really push the pace and gets a lot of rebounds really makes his teammates better. And what I love about both those guys, like you mentioned the above the break, like hit ahead passes is that both those guys are great passers, but they're not just massaging the ball, handling it and dribbling over and over. They're getting it out quick to these guys and really maximizing their teammates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, more broadly, like how we mentioned that there's not really a great comp. I think this comes up so, or this is this, I think this is the primary reason for why nationally you see so much like indecision about Giddy. Because you think about someone like Jalen Green, who isn't having an amazing season, uh, at least shooting the ball. But Houston fans at least have an anchor point. Like they can hold on to the idea of Devin Booker because Devin Booker was similarly inefficient as a, as a guard coming into the league. He had a few years of inefficiency and then he started to become gradually more and more efficient as this shooting two guard. And you can imagine Jalen that happening to Jalen Green, whether that's true or not. I mean, Jalen Green might just end up not being a great player. He may be inefficient his whole career, but at least you have something to hold on to as a fan. And I think for not just national people, but also a lot of Thunder fans, there is no anchor point with Giddy. And you don't see anyone else in the NBA who moves like him and is a wildly successful player. And so you just don't know what to think. Like when I think about what what could be Josh's ceiling, I have a really tough time being definitively like, yes, he could definitely be an all-star. Like it's hard for me to get there just because I don't know what it would look like yet. Like once he is on a team with SGA, Chet, J-Dub, another draft pick, like what will his role really look like in the NBA? He's obviously shown enough flashes this season where you're excited about the future, but that lack of a comp, I feel like clouds his whole evaluation across the league. I just don't think anyone knows what to do with him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's just a very, very unique player. And I think that you hit the nail on the head with the talks about what is his ideal role on this Thunder team. I think it'd be a lot easier if you just said, placed him in Indiana instead of Tyrese Halliburton and you let him run that offense the same way or Atlanta or something like that, where he's a primary playmaker and everything's running through him. But in a situation like this, where he's more of an ancillary piece, where you're still running a lot of your offense through him, but Shea's obviously the head of the snake, it's going to make things different. And then along with those differences between him and Lonzo, Josh is obviously much more physical. Lonzo the, uh, is the better defender. Both of those guys had their shooting issues earlier on. It looks like both of them are fixing it to a point, fingers crossed on Josh, uh, Josh especially. But I think both those guys just make winning plays and can really impact games even without their scoring. Yeah, I agree on that. I was I was just remembering uh, because someone just posted it in the Discord. You remember that YouTube draft video where it had josh's weaknesses basketball and, and was it, his, yeah. <laughs> yeah and it was like everything related to basketball it felt like the thing that i always thought was so funny about that was that it wasn't totally false like especially last year he was not good and and in some respects it's still not good in some of those things and yet he's clearly shown he's an nba player and that's like the that's what makes it so tough to figure him out because yes, the the weaknesses are absolutely there. Like he doesn't have a great handle. He's not super athletic. Um, his shooting is still a question mark, even with this recent stretch. And the fact that even despite all that, he's still shown himself to be an NBA player, still making positive contributions, still having games like that against the Sixers, uh, where he's showing that he can get to the line on some nights. That's what excites me because we just haven't really seen a player like this. And as he starts correcting some of those weaknesses, as he starts checking them off, all of a sudden he starts looking more and more like NBA players that people are more familiar with. And I think as a result of that, you'll start seeing the the conversation about Giddy shift. Like if he truly is 
you know, ends up being a 36 to 40% shooter from three, that changes everything. That that makes it so much easier for people to conceptualize what Josh Giddy could be in the NBA. Yeah, I agree. And then the last one of flashes here doesn't get any easier here as the comps just are never fun or not never fun, but they're never easy one-to-one. But J-Dub, um, do you have anybody for him in mind? I have a, a couple guys. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say this is even based on uh, like a comparison and how they play. But I think about someone like Aaron Gordon, who was drafted he, you know, he's taller, he's 6'8", he's 235, so he, he's a bigger player. He plays differently. But the idea that sometimes guys are perfect in like a third or fourth man role, and as much as I want to kind of push J-Dub to his limits, there is also the possibility that if you did that, you might see something like we saw in Orlando with Aaron Gordon, where they were trying to make him that main guy. And as a result, everyone just got super down on Aaron Gordon and then he goes to Denver, and now he's third guy, sometimes the second guy uh, on that team, potentially could make the all-star game this year because his role is just perfect when he is surrounded by stars. And we were talking about uh, Sam Bassini about J-Dub, and he kind of brought that up as one of his strengths. The fact that you can have a guy who's so good, but part of his strength is that he can play with stars so easily. He can fit in so easily. And that shouldn't be looked at as a weakness necessarily. That should be a huge positive because when you can get guys that can be that upper level of quote unquote role players. And and like I said, Aaron Gordon, even in that role could potentially make the all-star game this year. That's a huge thing. So I don't know if they play similarly. I mean, obviously, J-Dub uh, has some hops. Uh, Aaron Gordon obviously has hops. Um, I don't know if they're like the best comparison in terms of how they play, but just in terms of role on a team, I thought about Aaron Gordon. No, I completely see that. I mean, Aaron Gordon is not the guy who you want to be as your main guy on the team, but if he's complimenting your pieces and kind of like insulating them, I think that's exactly what you want. J-Dub is probably not going to be the best player on any team, but he just maximizes everybody else around him and just is the ultimate or not ultimate, but he's just a Swiss army knife in a lot of ways. And I'm I'm very excited for this one, this comparison of like the flashes, because I also had a role guy and also another former Arizona Wildcat. And I'm excited to see what you think about this. I had Andre Iguodala just as uh, a connector. As, as and as an off- I was like, oh, he's Iggy. Yeah. yeah, as an offensive player, he can just do all types of things. He's not somebody who you want to run your offense through, but he's somebody who can run a lot of plays through and is going to make good decisions. Obviously, Andre Godala is one of the better defenders on the perimeter of this generation. J-Dub still has a lot of way to go with that. Just, but just as a guy who can play multiple roles and just kind of be slotted throughout the roster in different positions, I think it's pretty similar. Um, they had similar builds out of the draft. Both came in at 21 years old. Iggy measured at 6'6 and 3'4 with shoes on, 6'11 wingspan, 236 pounds and 35, uh, 34.5 inch vertical. Jadub on the other end had a 6.65 and 3 quarters measurement with shoes on, 7'2 and a quarter wingspan, 209 pounds and a 39 inch vertical, a little bit higher than Iggy, but just thought it was... Um, interesting just to watch those guys and i'm thinking of more like denver andre gudala to uh some of those warriors teams as a guy who you're not really relying on to score a bunch of points but he's just at any night that you need it's like hey we need a few more points here we need a few more assists few more rebounds we need to need you to guard this guy you can just throw out j-dub and he can do it yeah and and a better on-court comp than someone like aaron gordon because of the playmaking um we've seen flashes of that playmaking already this season with j-dub and that was certainly a big part of Iggy's game um, throughout his career, but especially like, you know, he was averaging over six assists per game back in Philly. I'm looking at his basketball reference. So he made the all-star game one year, his 28-year-old season with Philly, and he only scored 12 points per game that season. Like he had games with, or he had seasons with Philly where he scored over 18 points a game. He, he scored 20 points a game in the 07-08 season, but it was that one season. I wonder what, he must've been really hot in the first half of that season because his final counting stats were 12, six and five, which don't scream all-star, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's impressive. Andre Godal is a winning player, but he's much like the Aaron Gordon thing that we mentioned earlier of he's not probably the guy who you want as your best player, but he's still a really yeah, solid yeah. player who impacts winning. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a Philly fan back then. And so 
you know, this is when AI obviously had the run to the finals and then Andre Gudala was kind of seen as the next guy up. And so when they made the trade for to trade away Iverson, Iggy was kind of seen as like, okay, he's going to step in to that role. And they just weren't a great team. You know, like they they were middling. They were they were kind of like a team stuck in the middle for a lot of years. And then you saw though when he went to Denver and then when he was he ended up in Golden State, like, oh, this guy is still wildly valuable. And by that point, I mean, he didn't get to Golden State until he was 30. And we saw how valuable, I mean, won a finals MVP um, with Golden State, how valuable someone like that can be on a high level team. And so, yeah, if J-Dub got anywhere near Iguodala, especially defensively, which he's a long, far away from that, uh, that that would be a, a massive outcome for OKC. Yeah, people talk about floor raising and ceiling raising. I like the term just amplifier. I think he just makes everything better around him and just, I don't know, um, maximizes what guys are already good at. I mean, you have him next to Josh Giddy, and he just cuts around and he can play on or off the ball and play with him. Same thing with Shea. He can guard a few different positions, but J-Dub, I'm, I'm very excited for moving forward. Yes, very excited. He's already, I mean, I already consider him part of that like trio. I yeah, guess I, I should don't... say quartet. I shouldn't forget Chet. No, can't forget that at all. But I mean, the odds that you get another core piece who it's like a building block at like 11 or 12 is pretty incredible. So should be fun going forward and um, should be interesting going tonight as they play against the Chicago Bulls. But I wanted to say thanks again for joining me today, Alex. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to the NBA Slam and Jam for The Athletic, if you want like a taste of just random NBA teams without you know necessarily going all in, they do a great job of just like being a fan for that team for a week and doing deep dives and talking to different reporters. And then Andrew versus the Beat is always a, a fun time, and I definitely respect your trivial abilities making those questions. Yeah, definitely listen this week. It was a very uh, competitive game of trivia featuring what I consider my worst trivia question ever. Uh, so that is very exciting. Oh, that's that's awesome. I'm very excited for that. But it should be a lot of fun. Thanks again, Alex, for coming on with me. Hope to get you on again. Hope you have a great day after this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. For sure. And thank you all for listening to the Thunder Buddies podcast. We are part of the Oklahoman. We will be back on Tuesday. Make sure to follow our socials at Thunder Bud Pod. And we will be back next week.